Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. The weekend is upon us, and Walters is a great spot to gather for brunch. From chicken and waffles to Walters breakfast tacos, Walters menu has something for everyone. On top of that, for only $20, enjoy bottomless drinks, including mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and old-time lagers. Walters is your spot for all of the NBA playoffs. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fetty setting. The pitch to Tellez. Swing and a high fly ball to deep right. Soto going back, way back. It's going, going, and it is gone. Goodbye. Into the second deck and straight away right field. And Milwaukee gets on the board first here in the bottom of the sixth inning. Thomas is hit into right center field. Into the gap, moving back Taylor. And it's over his head and off the wall. Thomas, who can fly, is around second. They're still chasing the ball out there. As the right fielder Renfro comes over to help out. Thomas is being waved home. Here comes the throw to the plate. He is out at the plate. So Arias, who's walked his last two times up, grounds it to third. Franco. Touches third for one, throws to second for two, throws to first. It's a triple play. Cole checks the runner. Now the pitch in the way. Breaking ball hit high in the air to deep left field. That goes Thomas way back to the wall. Going, going, and gone. Goodbye. Tyrone Taylor with his second home run of the year. A three-run shot. And the Brewers have played it five against Austin Volt here in the bottom of the eighth inning. And taken a 2-0 game and blown it to smithereens. It's now the Brewers 7 and the Nationals nothing. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, May 21st, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at American Family Field. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, you can't say that Friday night was not interesting for the Nats. Uh, The game was interesting. Certainly the seventh inning was interesting. Uh, The final score of the game Maybe not so interesting. The Nats lost at the Milwaukee Brewers 7-0 in Game 1 of a three-game series. That's this season now 13-27. and That is the second-worst record in the National League as we are now 40 games into the Nats season. So about a quarter of the way into the season, the Nats are on pace to finish 53-109. and Let that sink in on your Saturday. But we on Friday night at least had a very interesting seventh inning. Top of the seventh, a Lane Thomas triple that could have and I think should have been an inside the park home run. Bottom of the seventh, a triple play by the Nats. You know, Mark, seeing an inside the park homer is rare. Seeing a triple play is rare. Seeing both in the same game, exceptionally rare. 
seeing both in the same inning practically unheard of. I'm guessing in all your time covering the Nats, you have never seen an inside the park homer and a triple play in the same inning. I'm pretty sure I can say with confidence I have never seen that combo in the same inning. Also pretty sure I've never seen it in the same game. That was a crazy sequence when you stop and think about everything that happened and the circumstances that even allow for the possibility of something like that to happen. It's only the second triple play in Nationals history. And the other one was a really weird line out to first. Zimmerman makes the catch, steps on first, and then throws a little lollipop across the diamond to Anthony Rendon. And it was the first ever 3-5 triple play in Major League history. This was in 2016 in San Francisco. I thought that was a weird one. This was about as conventional as they get. You can't draw it up any better. Not to say that it was easy. That's not. You still got to be quick with the turn. But it was set up as perfectly as you could. A chopper right on top of third base. Michael Franco steps on the base, throws a second. Cesar Hernandez throws the first. There you go. And what should have been this emotional high moment for the Nationals instead is a footnote to this game because of both what happened in the top of the inning when they didn't score a run and then what because of what happened in the eighth inning when a close game turned into a rout. And I feel like this is not the first time we've talked about a game that was close and wound up being a rout in the wrong direction for the Nationals. Yes, as uh, Jerry said to George in the very final scene of Seinfeld, haven't we had this conversation before? Uh, yeah, I think we have had this. Con- Maybe it was George to Jerry. Haven't we had this conversation before? You think? I think we have. Yeah, the triple play was something else. I mean, like you said, conventional triple play, quote unquote, five four three. Uh, nice job by Cesar Hernandez on that triple play because the throw from Franco, I thought was off, was low. And Cesar did a nice job of catching the baseball, getting the ball to first. And so you got that triple play. And I loved the shot of Carl Edwards Jr. on Masson after that triple play. He uh, he like uh, let out this primal scream. He was fired up. It was good to see that. We have seen that so rarely this Nats season. Guys getting fired up about something. To see Edwards get like that, that was cool to see that. But uh, alas, the uh, triple play ends up coming in a 7 nothing loss. We want to know why he was so fired up. Because the inning had begun, of course, with back-to-back walks. And then he gets out of it, and his final line, I don't think I've ever seen this in a final line for an inning. He throws one scoreless inning in which he threw 12 pitches, only four of them strikes. There was a four-strike inning, and the only reason that he got out of it is because he got three outs on one of those four strikes. Yeah, that was odd. That was strange. So as for the top of the seventh inning on Friday night, uh, Lane Thomas was an ad starting left fielder and number six batter. By the way, on Friday night, you had Michael Franco as a number five batter, Lane Thomas as a number six batter. I said to myself before this game started, this is going to be one of those games for the Nats where they do not score much. And of course, they ended up not scoring at all. But uh, Lane in the top of the seventh, a one-out triple. So good to see this. Uh, a one-out triple off the center field warning track But he ends up getting thrown out at home and by a good bit in yet another instance of a Nats player this season being thrown out at home by a good bit. However, the Nats got screwed on this play. There was no review of the play despite the Brewers catcher Omar Narvaez clearly blocking Thomas's path to home plate. Lane Thomas, his name on this play was only Thomas because he had no lane to home plate, but there was no review of the play. And 
you know, it was confusing watching the game because we knew that there was a like replay malfunction in Milwaukee in the first inning. Then we got told later in the broadcast, well, no, the malfunction was fixed. So there was review available of that Lane Thomas triple. And then I know that Davey Martinez during his postgame session with you guys said that there was no review of the play because the Nats supposedly did not ask for a review within the allotted time of 20 seconds. Boy, that is tough to swallow. That should have been an inside the park homer for Lane Thomas. So, all right, a lot of stuff to discuss here, but let's just, you know, get through the the review or not review part of it. And yes, you do technically have 20 seconds to make the call. It used to be 30. They dropped it down to 20. Davey is insisting that they got it in in 17 seconds. They have their own clock on this, and they said it was soon enough. He was also concerned that the umpires weren't really like looking towards the dugout to even see if they wanted to. They were having trouble even getting their attention for it. And he went out there and he argued for a while with Jeff Nelson. I I almost felt like watching it live, like Davey's trying to get ejected. Like he's just so upset. And it's like one of these, I need to do something to get the team fired up. So I'm just going to get myself ejected. And of course he couldn't even get that done. But I don't know. I, I will say this, those blocking the play calls are so nebulous. And I feel like there's never a clear answer on what counts and what doesn't count. And when you leave it up to replay, you're just, to me, asking for all kinds of trouble. And I just, I come back to this. Even if he did block the plate, did that allow the out to be made? Like, no, he was going to be out. (laughs) Okay. Now you can say, fine, you want to stick to the rules. He violated it and you should call him safe on the plate. But I just thought that was such an egregious send and not worth it in that circumstance. Because here's why. You're down two nothing. It's the seventh inning. There's only one out. You have a team that has been struggling like crazy to score runs. And one of the worst things they've been doing here throughout the last week plus is they're trying way too hard to score runs. They're trying to force the issue when it's not there for you. I get that you say, well, hey, he had a shot at it. And maybe it requires a good relay. I didn't think it was a great relay. I thought it was a good relay. But at some point, you have to just take what is being given to you. You had a triple. You maybe for the first time had Eric Lauer on the ropes. Maybe you got a shot at getting him in with one out from third base. And what do you know what happens after that? Riley Adams singles to left. Now, who knows, you know, the what if game, if that actually would have happened if they held him at third. But I just felt like in that situation, there was not enough benefit, reason to take that shot at it, knowing that there was a decent chance he's going to be out on the play. Yeah. So I think two things are true. I think the Nats got jobbed because my understanding of the home plate collision rule, and I just think kind of a basic logical understanding of the rule is that Narvaez blocked Thomas's path to home plate. You're not supposed to do that as a catcher anymore. Okay. So that's true. But what's also true is that that was a bad send by Gary DeSorcino because Lane Thomas was out by quite a bit. This was another one. You know, it's not just that the Nats are getting guys thrown out on the base paths. It's the frequency with which guys are thrown out. And you say to yourself, boy, he was out by a mile. Like that really wasn't that close. That's happened way too often. And, you know, specific to DeSarcina, and I know it's so easy to just slam the third base coach when you have guys getting thrown out at home. But you know what? What are you supposed to do here? I mean, for years, everyone loved to smack around Bob Senley Henley like a pinata. Well, he's out. DeSarcina's in. And what are we seeing so far this year? And the Nats quantifiably have had among the higher number of players thrown out at home plate so far this season. And I'd love to see this. And I don't know that anyone tracks this stat, but, you know, on kind of like 50-50 sends where it's not so obvious whether you should send a guy, how often the guy has ended, has ended up being out for the Nats? It seems like the success rate 
on 50-50 sends by DeSarcina is not very good. And that's a problem. You know, I don't know if his instincts are off. I don't know if he's overestimating what the Nats have in terms of team speed. But this should not be happening as often as it's happening. Especially, you know, like you said, this is a this is a great moment, right? This is a triple. This puts you in prime run scoring territory. And instead, you run yourself into another out at home plate. Yeah. And I think that's what it is. It's situational. You have to get the situation. And look, I know every third base coach and Gary DeSarcine has done this long enough that I know everything that goes through your mind in those moments. And it's not just in that moment. There's all kinds of prep work that's done in advance. You're uh, knowing which fielders are good at what, knowing which runners are worth sending, knowing who's coming up next, knowing what the score is. No, you know, there's a million things that are taken into consideration. And a lot of them come into play even before that split second decision that you have to make. But I just come back to this idea of and he's not alone. We're seeing it on display from him, but we're seeing it also from hitters on this team and from fielders on this team as well, to be honest. They're trying to make too many things happen. They know in the back of their minds that they're losing games and they're losing games often because they're not scoring runs or because they're making mistakes in the field or these one or two little things are costing them games. You can't fix that by trying to fix it. <laughs> in a weird way. You have to just play the game the way that you know how to and trust that you're going to make the right decisions and the right plays. And that ultimately is going to win you ball games. And I just feels like they are trying too hard to make this happen. And I thought this might've been, I mean, we see it almost every single night, uh, certainly on this road trip, you can point to at least one play every single night that you said they were trying too hard and they botched it as a result. And this might've been the worst of them all. One of the best things to look at if you're trying to figure out, is my baseball team a good base running team? Is this Fangraph's all-encompassing base running stat, BSR, base running runs? The Nats entered games on Friday, 28th out of 30 major league teams in base running runs, minus five and a half base running runs on the season. So it's not just, it seems to be that the Nats have been a bad base running team. It is, again, quantifiably that the Nats have been a bad base running team so far this season. So we had what happened in the top of the seventh inning with the Lane Thomas inside the park homer that wasn't. We had what happened in the bottom of the seventh inning with the triple play that was by the Nats, and that was a nice job by the Nats. And then we also had what happened in the bottom of the eighth inning. The game completely unraveled in that inning. This was a 2 nothing game. This ends up being a blowout loss. This, for the bulk of the night on Friday, was a close game for the Nats at the Brewers. But Austin Voth in the bottom of the eighth was a certified disaster. He allowed five runs and got just one out. Uh, he gave up the five runs on a leadoff single by Christian Yelich, a full count double by Rowdy Telez, a five-pitch walk of Andrew McCutcheon, a bases-loaded two-run single by Hunter Renfro on a one-two pitch for a 4 nothing Brewers lead, and a two-out, three-run homer by Tyrone Taylor to left field for a 7 nothing. Brewers lead. We have seen Austin Voth look good at times this season, and we've talked about that. But Mark, you put out some pretty jaw-dropping stats regarding Austin Voth that I think might surprise some people because you do see some good with him, but then you see a game like what transpired on Friday night for him, which was awful. And then the bigger picture that you highlighted on Twitter, man, that hits home with Austin Voth. All right, cover your eyes, everyone, or cover your ears if you don't want to hear this, but these are the numbers. We'll start with this season. He's now got an 844 ERA, a 2.063 whip, 
in 17 appearances. And now bigger picture over his career, 5.48 ERA, 1.436 whip, and that's in 90 career appearances for the Nationals. And we're talking about parts of five seasons now that he has pitched for them. I'll just say I have seen plenty of other pitchers come through here who have gotten far fewer opportunities to keep going out there and have had better numbers probably overall or similar numbers and have been cut loose prior to this point. Now, I'm going to reasons why that hasn't happened yet, and maybe we're getting to that point where they do have to finally make a decision on a guy who is out of options, and they've been sticking with him for quite a while now. And like you said, there are moments that you say, boy, he, he does kind of have something and he has good outings. But the blowups are bad when they happen. They're really bad. And I just want to talk about also not just the result of it, but the decision to pitch him there. It's a 2 nothing game in the bottom of the eighth. Uh, I understand you don't always get to use your best pitchers when you're trailing. That, that That's a little bit of a risk and a gamble, and you can't do that a lot. But what have we been talking about a lot this year? And what has Dave even pointed out? He's having trouble finding situations to use his two best late-inning guys, Kyle Finnegan and Tanner Rainey. So much so that at times, once he gets to you know four or five days in a row they haven't pitched, he's just saying, well, I'm going to put them in the game no matter what. Now, they both pitched on Wednesday in Miami. Crazy game there towards the end. Rainey has struggled some. Finnegan's looked really good lately. They had a day off on Thursday. Is it the end of the world to use a Kyle Finnegan in the bottom of the eighth when you're down to nothing? And the reason I say this is it's not just about whether or not they would have won this game, because who knows? Maybe they still never would have scored a run and they get shut out anyways. But if you use him and you manage to keep it at 2 nothing, you know what else happens? The Brewers now have to use Josh Hader in the ninth. Now, you're probably not going to rally against him. He's been perfect this year. But you've used him. You've made him throw pitches. And now maybe there's a domino effect in game two of the series or game three of the series. And at some point, Maybe he's not available because he's pitched too much. I just, I feel like where this team is at right now, anytime you're in a game close late, you just got to use the handful of guys that you feel best about. And you can't just say, oh, well, we only use him when it's tied or we're ahead. Maybe you do have to just use Kyle Finnegan down 2 nothing in the eighth inning. You know, there was a period of time we know when Davey was trying to evaluate some of these relievers. Uh, we're past that point now. The Nats have had to make their cuts with the bullpen, with the shrinking of the uh, pitchers that you're allowed to have on your roster. And, you know, more to the point, what is there left to evaluate with Austin Voth? We know what he is. But, you know, you take a step back and just consider the following. Austin Voth this season now has pitched in 17 games for the Nats. Tanner Rainey has pitched in 11. Austin Voth this season has totaled 16 innings for the Nats. Tanner Rainey has totaled a 10 and two-thirds innings. If you believe that Tanner Rainey is your best reliever, and look, maybe he isn't. He has not looked great lately. But if you believe that he is, why the heck has he made 11 appearances and Austin Voth has made 17? You know, like you as a manager have to do some self-scouting and some self-checking and saying, all right, I have in the micro my beliefs and my philosophies, but let me just make sure that what I'm doing here is leading to the results that I want. And I don't mean results by wins and losses. I mean by the right guys getting the right amounts of playing time. That's not happening here. There's no reason that Austin Voth and his 844 ERA should have made 17 appearances this year and Tanner Rainey should have made 11. And, you know, this thing of we're saving Rainey for, you know, a rainy day. We're saving Rainey for when we're ahead, for when we're leading. But you know what this reminds me of? You see this in basketball all the time where a star player gets a few early fouls and then the coach takes the guy out of the game 
And then by the end of the game, the star player has played in like two thirds of the minutes he otherwise would have, but he only has three fouls. Those extra fouls never end up coming and the coach ends up doing it to himself. He ends up limiting the player, not the foul trouble, because the foul trouble that the coach feared never actually ended up happening. And I feel like managers do that with their best relievers. They keep waiting and well, well, no, this isn't the right spot. Well, no, we got to wait till we're ahead. We got to wait for a better situation. Those situations don't always come, especially when you're as bad as the Nats are. That was a prime opportunity to pitch Tanner Rainey in a game in which the Nats were trailing on Friday night. And Davey didn't do it. And the Nats paid the price. And, you know, again, do wins and losses matter this season? Not really. But if they did, Davey would be getting hammered for this because there's no excuse to keep using Austin Voth, especially in a spot like Friday night. That was a, essentially a high leverage spot in which uh, Davey used Voth. Well, and, you know, you can also say that maybe it comes back to haunt you, but think of it this way. Let's say you pitch them in this game, you still lose. And now for whatever reason, they're not available tomorrow or the day after because they've been overused now. And it turns out, oh, you actually have a lead late in the game. You don't get to use them. You know what? So be it. Like you'd love to at least be in that position uh, where you actually do have a lead and you say, well, we got to find somebody else to try to close out tonight's game. That's okay in the situation they're in. To me, they just don't have enough opportunities to win games late. So when you do have one, go for it. And on top of all that, if this is about evaluation, don't you need to evaluate how Tanner Rainey handles a situation on the road against a, a first place club in a close game. Yes, you're not winning, but it's still a close game. A zero in that inning is just as important in the grand scheme of things. So, uh, yeah, I would have loved to see more of that. And it, it was the heart of the lineup. It was three, four, five. Yelich, Tellez, McCutcheon in the eighth. So we're not talking about the bottom of the order. You can't say, well, it was matchup based or something like that. No, that was, hey, we're trailing. So we're going to use the guys who we use when we're trailing. And the other guy, even if you don't want to use, Finnegan and Rainey, and I think they should have used at least one of them. The guy who replaced Austin Voth once it all fell apart was our boy Paolo Espino. Paolo Espino now has a 3.06 ERA this season. Now, that's coming almost exclusively in garbage time. And so who knows if you put him into situations of more consequence, what's going to happen. But I'll say this, it couldn't have been any worse than what Voth did. Voth faced six batters, five of them got on, four of them had what StatCast considers a hard hit ball off him, and you had a two-run single and a three-run homer within that. You can't tell me Paolo would have been any worse, right? It's really troubling when you look at reliever usage. The top three relievers this season for the Nats in terms of appearances are Victor Arano, Steve Ciszek, and Austin Voth. ERAs of 424, 565, and 844. Your better relievers, guys like Tanner Rainey, and Kyle Finnegan, and Paolo Espino, and even Erasmo Ramirez. They haven't pitched as much as those other guys. There needs to be a correction here. The worst relievers, it feels like, are pitching the most. It's not the way it should be. And I know it's all relative in a bullpen, and this bullpen maybe isn't great to begin with, but it's like the guys who aren't doing well are pitching way too often for this team, and I think Davey's got to do a better job with that. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ashby working for the wind-up third base side of the rubber. Rocks, kicks, and delivers. Swing and a ground ball. Cue to the first baseman, Telez. He waves off Ashby. He's to the back himself for the out that ends the ball game. And the Brewers take game one of this series for the Nationals. This was another bad game for the Nats offense. I mean, they got shut out, the Nats did, on Friday night. A mere six hits for the game. Uh, You had a triple, a double, and four singles. Zero walks in the game. We interestingly had Nelson Cruz not moved down in the lineup, but moved up in the lineup on this night. He did have two singles, uh, so okay, fine. But I'd like to actually focus on this for a moment. In a 1-2-3 fifth inning, you had three Nats batters, uh, Victor Robles, Alcides Escobar, and Cesar Hernandez, each either square to bunt or bunt. And Davey, and I'm, I'm going off the transcript here, or what was transcribed. I didn't hear Davey say this, but it sounded like Davey got asked about this with you guys, and this wasn't like something Davey ordered. This was something that these guys did on their own. What up with that? Three guys <laughs> trying to bunt in an inning in 2022. It's not 1952. It's 2022. What was the deal with that? I wish you all could have seen the reaction in the press box as that happened. There was a look of astonishment and we're looking at each other like, did that really just happen? Did we actually just see three straight guys try to bunt in an inning? I don't think I've ever seen three straight batters, the only three batters of an inning, try to bunt. And you are correct. Davey said that none of those were specifically called from the dugout. He said he was not surprised by Robles's attempt, which, you know, Victor is leading off the inning and he tries a push bunt to the right side, which is something that he has done and fairly well. I think we talked the other night about how he's been pretty good at it. This one got a little too close to the mound. He didn't get it far enough to the right. So I think that one he can live with. But as far as Escobar and then Cesar Hernandez after that, I think Davey was just as astonished as we all were watching it. Now you can say, okay, well, that's clearly not on the manager. That's on the players for taking it upon themselves to do that. But you also at some point have to say, does a manager just need to tell his players, stop it? You know, don't do that again, or you're getting benched for a day. What, like whatever that is, I don't know what the punishment, the proper punishment for something like that is. But we've seen repeatedly so far this season, players attempting to do things that don't seem to make a lot of sound baseball sense. And you've even heard Davey mention it after the fact, usually grumbling about it or, you know, not being real pleased with it. I don't know what he says behind closed doors to them when mistakes are made. I know that he is capable of being much more forceful than we see in public when he's on camera and we're talking to him. But either the message isn't getting through or he's not delivering it in a way that is having some more force and some more impact. And at some point, maybe that is what has to happen because there's no reason for some of these not smart baseball plays to be happening from, let's point out, not kids, but from veterans who absolutely should know better than that. Yeah. And you also wonder organizationally, 
are their philosophies that are being instilled in guys. You know, I think a good team that is aware of what bunting means says, hey, guys, you know, there are certain tenets by which we abide as an organization. And one of them is you don't bunt unless you're told to bunt or unless you're allowed to bunt. Because here are the numbers on bunting. And here's why bunting is viewed the way it's viewed now as compared to the way it was viewed years ago. You know, you're facing in the Brewers, by the way, one of the more analytically inclined teams in baseball. The Brewers are the number one team in the National League in home runs this season. The Brewers now, through 39 games this year, have hit 52 homers, number one in the majors. The Nats now, through 40 games this year, one more game than Milwaukee has played, have hit 26 home runs, half as many homers as the Brewers have hit. You're not beating Milwaukee by bunting your way to a win, okay? You need to mash. You need to let guys hit. And I get that those who attempted to bunt in that fifth inning aren't exactly, you know, your three best, you know, you're not, it's not three Frank Howards in that fifth inning, right? Robles, Escobar, and Hernandez. But still, swing. See what happens. You never know what could happen. And instead, you get that and you're like, man, what are you doing doing that? So here's the stat, and I actually used it in my little game preview on MassInSports.com, the lineups post, because I thought it was really telling of the difference in these two teams and their offensive approaches. Entering this game, the Nationals, would you believe, actually ranked fourth in the NL in batting average and sixth in on-base percentage. You say, boy, that's, that's all right. That's not bad. The problem, they're only ninth in runs scored. And the primary reason for that is because they don't hit for power. They're 11th in slugging percentage. Okay. Now let's flip to the Brewers side. They rank 10th in the NL in batting average and on base percentage, but they're fourth in runs scored. Why? Because they do hit for power. They're fourth in slugging percentage. There's the difference right there. The team that hits for power, scores runs, wins more games. The team that maybe gets on more, hits more singles, ranks better than in a lot of categories, actually scores significantly fewer runs and ultimately loses more games. This is baseball in 2022. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but the, the focus on batting average can be so misleading when people say, well, he's a 270 hitter. Well, okay, fine. But give me more than that. Tell me more about the guy because 270 hitter may not mean much. Cesar Hernandez this season has a very nice batting average, okay? There's a lot more to your offensive profile than just your batting average. All these singles, you know, I, I mean, I think about Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz has hit a lot of singles this season. Good for him. That's not what he's here to do, you know? That, that those singles don't do much for you if you're Nelson Cruz. And uh, like I said, interesting to see him moved up in the lineup on Friday night as opposed to down with the season uh, that he is having. So Eric Fetty was the Nats starting pitcher on Friday night. I don't know about you, but at the end of Fetty's outing, I was like, if somebody had no idea about Eric Fetty as a pitcher and said, tell me about Eric Fetty, show me a prototypical Eric Fetty game, I would just show that person a tape of Friday night's game. I feel like this is kind of what Eric Fetty is. You know, he wasn't terrible in this game, two runs in five and two thirds innings, but he did not have a clean inning until the fifth inning. He tossed five scoreless innings to begin his outing. You say, okay, that's pretty good. But he did not have a clean inning uh, until the bottom of the fifth inning. And he ultimately ends up not making it out of the sixth inning. That's kind of what Eric Fetty is. Uh, he gave up four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles. He issued three walks. He had four strikeouts. Uh, like I said, five scoreless innings to begin his night. That's good. But he put some guys on over the first four innings. Then in the bottom of the sixth, he gives up two runs. Uh, he issues a leadoff eight-pitch walk of Luis Arias despite 
him having been down to the count at 1.12. Ben Fetty gives up a one-out first pitch, two-run homer to Rowdy Telez, who was not scoring up to bunt, if you could believe that. Uh, the homer uh, giving the Brewers a 2-0 lead. Ben Fetty gives up a two-out single to Hunter Renfro, who Fetty had down at 1.02. Fetty gets pulled from the game. So not a bad outing, you know? I mean, he, he puts you in a position to win, but this is kind of what Eric Fetty is, you know? Don't count on six innings. Count on him putting some guys on base. Count on him giving up some runs, but he can at least be uh, competitive for you. He can be confident for you. And I thought that he was that on Friday night. He was. This was a very Eric Fetty start, as you're uh, pointing out. And would you believe that at the end of the fifth inning, he's got five zeros on the board despite, you know, some traffic, but he didn't really allow them to string anything together. And he's at 75 pitches, not a, you know, high total. It's 15 per inning. That's what you'd like to see. At that moment, his ERA for the season is 369. Would you have guessed that about Eric Fetty? Probably not. But he's kind of quietly been putting up a lot of zeros. And then at the end of the night, because he gives up the two-run homer in the sixth, that number ends up at 408. And it shows you how just one mistake can be everything. Well, it starts with a walk, so it's like it's a couple mistakes, a leadoff walk. But then the home run to tell us, and I thought this was really interesting, uh, and Eric was explained to us after the fact. If you look at the pitch, it's a cutter, and it's actually inside. It's it's not even over the plate. It's, it's off the plate. And so you say, give Tellus some credit for turning on that pitch. And Fetty said, ideally, he wanted it a little bit higher than that, but he admitted it was off the plate. But here's what's interesting, and I think this is a good example of if Eric Fetty is ever going to take that next step and become more than the two runs and five and two thirds kind of pitcher, this is where it has to happen. He said he got Tellez out in his first two at-bats on that same pitch, cutter on the inside corner, got him to strike out once, got him to ground out to first base once. Now he's facing him a third time and he goes back to the same pitch. And even though the location wasn't necessarily bad, Tellez, who has now seen it and in his mind knows what Fetty's going to try to do, is ready for it, gets inside on it, and hits a two-run homer. And as Eric points out, maybe that's when he has to say to himself, I need to try it a different way when I'm facing him for the third time. Just because it worked the first two times doesn't mean I can go right back to it and do it again. The great pitchers, the Max Scherzers of the world, they consider all that kind of stuff. They leave the hitter guessing. They never know what they're going to face. They're really good at their pitch sequencing. Eric Fetty isn't there. Now, maybe he gets there someday, but at the moment, he's not there. And that's why what looks like it could be a very solid start for him ends up being kind of the same thing we've seen before because of a critical mistake, not of execution, but of thought process. Yeah, I mean, to me, I think with Fetty at this point, this is who he is until proven otherwise, right? Age 29 season, he was drafted by the Nats in 2014, so that was eight years ago now. But, you know, if this is what he is, two runs in five and two-thirds innings, his ERA for the season, even with what ended up happening on Friday night, is 408. I mean, you can work with that. You can have a guy like that in your rotation. It's not what you drafted him to be, right? I mean, let's understand that. He was taken with the number 18 pick in the 2014 draft. He was drafted to be, if not an ace, then, you know, a top two or three guy in your rotation. He's not that guy. But if he's a number four, number five for you, pitching, you know, in the territory of a four ERA, you can live with that. The problem with Fetty is, is that he hasn't been that guy throughout an entire season. You go back to Fetty's 2021 season, first 10 starts, ERA of 333. Lovely. You take that and run with that. But Eric Fetty ended up finishing last season with an ERA of 547. His uh, season last year fell off a cliff. So, you need to see him have an entirety of a season in which you feel pretty good about where he's at. But I'd say with Fetty's the season, 
So far, so good, especially like if you want to play with the numbers, he had that really bad start in the game against Arizona at Nats Park on April 20th, seven runs, six earned three into third innings. You take that out of the mix, the numbers for the season look even better. So, you know, it is what it is with Eric Fetty at this point, but you can work with two runs in five and two thirds innings. That, that wasn't your biggest problem on Friday night. Uh, well, speaking of guys uh, on whom the Nats have spent a first round pick and uh, the guy has not worked out so far, we got some bad news on Carter Keboom on Friday afternoon. It turns out that he needs Tommy John surgery for his right elbow. Uh, the Nats on March 21st placed Keboom on the 60-day injured list with a right elbow UCL sprain and a right flexor mass strain. So his 2022 season now is over before it ended up starting. Now, I guess the good news, if you want to call it good news, is that because he's a position player and not a pitcher, the expectation is that he could slash should be ready for spring training next year. But obviously, this is bad news for Carter Keyboom, and obviously, this continues him uh, having not worked out off the Nats having taken him with the number 28 pick in the 2016 draft. Yeah, and it's just another kind of wasted season on him, if you think about it. This is the third straight year that the hope was that or the team was saying, hey, Carter, be our third baseman. It's all yours. Go ahead. Take it. Seize it. Show us you're the guy. And for a variety of reasons, some of which were his fault and some of which obviously are not his fault, he has not been able to do that. Some of it was performance the last couple of years. This is obviously an injury that was out of his control, but it just, it frustrates you because it feels like they've just squandered uh, these three years in trying to find a long-term answer there and a long-term replacement for Anthony Rendon. Now, as far as the elbow is concerned, this was in the back of everyone's mind all along the fear that this might be the end result of it all. When they first found out that he was hurt, they called it a flexure mass strain. Uh, then the, a follow-up MRI did reveal a sprain of the elbow ligament. And anytime you hear that, you know that Tommy John surgery is a possibility. But as was the case, say, with Joe Ross last year, and is currently the case with Sean Doolittle, uh, who have similar injuries, the idea is, hey, we can try to rehab this, see if that works. It is possible to come back and play with it. He started to throw in the last few weeks in Florida. The pain came back. They looked it up again in another MRI, decided, no, you know what, we're going to have to do the surgery. And it's really unfortunate that is the case. Now, you're right that the time frame, if it had happened a little bit earlier, I guess it's even possibly could have returned this year. That I think I've heard of position players coming back in about four months from this. But where we are at this point, there's no real reason to push that. So they think he should be more than ready before spring training. But we're going to go into next year. And are we going to be saying for the fourth year, hey, Carter, here's third base. Show us that you're ready to take this job. Or are they going to say, you know what, we need to move on to plan B there. The problem is internally, there is no plan B at the moment. Michael Franco is their starting third baseman. There is nobody waiting in the wings. Maybe someday Brady House, last year's first round pick, is the guy. But for now, they still view him as a shortstop. They're not going to make that move, I think, for quite a while until they believe for certain that he can't play shortstop. It is, I think, now time to just say with Carter Keeblum, look, if he ever ends up working out, golly gee, that's great. But I think moving forward now, you're you're done with saying, well, we got to see what we have in Keeblum. I, I think it's like, hey, he has struggled mightily. Now he's coming off Tommy John surgery. You really have to move forward with, hey, we need to approach third base in a different way. And that's went into this season with Carter Keeboom as the plan. You can't do that next year. You got to be done with that, okay? And if Carter Keeboom ends up working out, then that's awesome news. But 
you know, it's another harsh reminder, especially now as we get closer to the 2022 MLB draft of just how bad these Nats first round picks for about a decade now have ended up working out. I mean, you mentioned Anthony Rendon, right? He kind of ended the run, him being a first round pick in 2011. Starting with 2012, Lucas Giolito, and then 2014, Eric Fetty, and 2016, Carter Keboom, and 2017, Seth Romero, who you don't even hear about anymore. 2018, Mason Denneberg, who's been hurt a ton. You know, 2019, Jackson Rutledge. We'll see, but he did not have a good year last year. 2020, Cade Cavalli, who's getting shelled right now for AAA. I mean, it's been one flop, one questionable pick after another. And, you know, Brady House is doing well so far this season in the lower levels of the minors, so that's good. But, you know, time will tell on him. But, man, the Nats have got to start converting on these first-round picks. And, you know, this Keyboom thing... People like to talk about, man, if only they had re-signed Anthony Rendon. I still think it's very questionable whether they should have done that. The problem isn't that they let Rendon walk. It's how they've replaced him, right? Like if Carter Keboom does what he's supposed to do and work out, you don't miss Anthony Rendon. The problem is he hasn't worked out and you haven't had anyone else to go to. And it's just, it really hurts you as a franchise when you keep missing on first round picks like this. The reason that this franchise is where it's at right now, and it's at a low point, it's at, it hasn't been this low in more than a decade, and we all understand that. The reason that it's happened, there's two reasons. It starts with the fact that the core group that won for them is no longer here, either because they were free agents, or they started to get old, or in a couple of cases, they were traded towards the end of their contracts. And, as you just point out, because, and this is probably more important, they have not been able to adequately replace those players, whether that's internally through a draft or externally by spending money on other free agents. Now, ideally, you have to do it from within because otherwise you're spending a fortune to try to sustain a winner. And if you look at the franchises that win year in and year out and win over a decade plus, and even their bad years are still pretty decent, like 500 kind of seasons. I'm talking the Cardinals. I'm talking the Dodgers, even the Yankees. Yes, they spend some money, but they also continually have a pipeline of prospects, not just first round picks, but second and third and fourth round picks who keep coming up every year and supplementing whatever it is that they lose along the way. That is where the Nationals have failed as an organization. And that I think more than anything is the reason why they were in the position they were in last July and now why they're where they are right now here in late May of 2022. Yeah, I mean, we brought this up with the recent series against the Houston Astros, but the two different paths that the Astros and Nats have taken since the 2019 World Series. The Astros have lost some really good players since that World Series and yet have continued to win. Garrett Cole gone, George Springer gone, Carlos Correa gone, and yet the Astros have continued to win. Why is that? Well, they've replaced those guys, and they've had other guys emerge, and the Nats have not had that, and that's why. Every team loses people, okay? You can't you can't get fixated on, but if only they had re-signed Anthony Rendon. It's not as simple as that, okay? It's not as simple as that. You as a team need to be in position to where if you lose a Rendon, that's okay, and things have not been okay for the Nats uh, at third base and, you know, really overall over these last few years. You tell us what you think. You can hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast at Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. A shout out to an intern for the Nats Chat Podcast, Luke Denbo. Uh, he has been doing a terrific job working for Tim Shovers, which is not easy to do. Oh, I mean, you talk about a tyrant as a boss. Yeah. You survive. It's like working for Steinbrenner in the 80s. Okay. If you can survive Shovers, uh, you can survive anything. 
but Luke has been doing a tremendous job. He's been live tweeting on our account on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. And Luke is a terrapin. He is a product of the University of Maryland, which is known in some circles as the Harvard of the Mid-Atlantic region. So uh, we thank Luke for his work and uh, we appreciate that so much. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Falco sets, 3-2 pitch. Swing and a miss, strike three. Rob Vaughn said, I promise you, we will make a pile. Boys make a pile. The Terps are Big Ten regular season champions.